This is Chuck Sachs, and welcome to Opera Fix. On this episode, I share my interviews with mezzo-soprano Sienna Licht-Miller, who performed Hermia, and countertenor Tim Mead, who performed Oberon, in the U.S. premiere of Robert Carson's production of the opera A Midsummer Night's Dream by composer Benjamin Britten. It was produced by Opera Philadelphia on February 8th, 10th, 15th, and 17th of 2019. These two interviews continue my series focusing on that production. And now, Sienna Licht-Miller and Tim Mead. Hello, Sienna. Hi. How do you feel opening night went for you? Well, it feels very fresh. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I haven't quite unpacked it yet, but there was a lot of excitement in the room. Um, The cast has a really special bond, and I think it was just so exciting to finally do it for humans and to um, actually do what opera is supposed to do, which is to have a dialogue between the performers and audience. Well, I, I know you did have somewhat of an invited audience at the final dress on Wednesday. Uh, yeah. When I was speaking to Manuel, she said there were some, there were a lot of teens and other school children there. Yeah. That probably would have some because of so much, all the bed work and the, the, the pratfalls and everything like that. They were pretty engaged. I was really impressed. I think in this era of short... Um, attention spans, it was quite a success. <laughs> yes, because, I mean, there's some really quiet moments in this production mm-hmm. that it's just you're sitting and you're listening to this gorgeous music and Robert's just letting it just chill out for a minute or so. Yeah. So Quiet um, is hard to come by in this era. So it, yes, it is. I think that's really important. Now, is this your role debut as Hermia? Yes, yes, it is. I've sung, I've sung Lucretia, which is a, a similar yes. um, tessitura, but I've never sung this my first Midsummer. But a far less tragic character than Lucretia. <laughs> yes. I've enjoyed the more comical parts of Hermia, because I think she has lots of sides that um, need to be expressed. Oh, I mean, yes. It's, and, uh, it's a part you feel for so much, because she is finally, she ends up being bedraggled by... by you know, done in by both men mm-hmm. and her best friend. Mm-hmm. Everyone turns on her, so it seems, and she can't understand why, what's going on. I mean, I, 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 last night it's like really watching the breakdown between Hermia and Helena's mm-hmm. relationship uh, after that gorgeous Helena piece about them growing up. And in this, they bring out these two dolls, and you're, you're kind of playing with them and hugging and then from there, it's all downhill for a while. I'd say so. Opera Philadelphia gave you a professional view as second lady in the Magic Flute. That was the Barry Kosky, right? Correct. And also, you presented uh, two recitals in, in 018. I did. So, 019, you'll be singing the lead role, Katja, in Dennis and Katja, a world premiere from Philip Venables and Tent Huffman. What does it mean to you have so much support as you begin to build your career from Opera Philadelphia? I have so much gratitude for this city and this company and Curtis, which I'm still currently a part of, um, and especially how this city works together. Like They bond together with different organizations, and I've been able to you know, benefit from all of these partnerships. And Curtis being a place that really wants you to have already started a profession before you even graduate is um, a huge deal because it's it's this art form as you know and most art forms it requires a whole lot of belief 
in a person and perhaps even more belief in them than mm-hmm. you even see yourself. And that's definitely been the case for me in that Opera Philadelphia and Curtis, they both have really seen light in me that needs to shine. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a huge honor. And I think Opera Philadelphia is now more than ever on the map. They've listened to what audiences want and they are they're addressing it and telling stories of the audience members. And so um, I'm so grateful. I, I know. I mean, uh, next season we get a Madame Butterfly where the primary lead cast is almost all Asian. Yes. Uh, including Butterfly. And that's like it's huge in this day and age. It's about time. Right. Um, but doesn't mean it happens anywhere else. Absolutely. But that's what I mean. Opera Philadelphia is listening. They want to be part. Um, they don't want to be a, a separate part of society. They want to be integrated. Into and then it. also, I mean, it's good what Curtis Institute does because there's some programs which in both music, theater, and opera where they don't let you near like performing or major roles for like a while. And it's like the way you learn is from actually doing. That's what a performing career is about. Right. You learn from that. Yes. And I think there's a whole lot to be said also about being in the presence of the greats or the people that have done this for 20 years. There's so much that is um, taught to you when you're in that room with the, that mm-hmm. type of energy. And Right, and here you have Corrado Rivaris, who has this wide expanding career, both nationally and internationally, coming from La Scala and other major companies in Europe. And, and so that's, uh, I mean, you have that great ability to work with someone of that caliber. A lot of expertise and experience. Experience, yes. experience. It's, it's, it's what builds you and um, allows you to create your own identity. So so when did you begin singing? Were you singing when you were little and a child? And I've always sung. You know, I, I, don't, I don't remember. To, I was a violinist, very, very diligent violinist until mm-hmm. I was 15. And uh, I had a teacher who had played in the San Francisco uh, Opera Orchestra, and she'd always have me sing the phrases. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a, a lot of ser- things led to the next, but essentially I um, decided to pursue voice, and it's just been a natural progression ever since. So. So there was that teacher who was violin teacher, um, <laughs> yeah. and were there family members who also supported you and said, "Go do this," because it's yeah. not necessarily a, a career most people push their children towards. It is not, and I think, um, but my parents have always really believed in whatever I believed in, and I had, I you know, I think the musical ear training that you develop by having a string instrument in your life is crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they saw that it made me happy, and I think that's what most parents want. So um, my father has an amazing voice. He's kind of a, a rogue, <laughs> you know, amateur, but he um, he appreciates it. So you've, I've noticed you graduated from a number of excellent programs. Uh, what do you feel each one was able to add to your training or skills? I mean, I think it's all been about ultimately trusting your gut and just being exposed to so many different types of experiences, whether they are positive, negative, uh, challenging, easy. Um, You know, Oberlin was such a diverse community and um, had its own challenges, but really allowed me to explore other sides of myself besides just being a singer. And I think that's also when you look at the people that we love and adore, not only were they great singers, but they were also well-rounded humans. And um, and I think that's becoming so clear to me that that's 
that that is a must mm-hmm. as I continue to go on is to trust the gut and to um, continue to develop the human side of myself. So well, I say you really did bring that on stage with with Hermia. Thank you. It was very believable. <laughs> and I, I think that also it's 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 the work you did, but it's also Emmanuel bringing Robert Carson because he really goes for that human humanity, that real feel. Right, and I mean Emmanuel has been a dream to work with. I mean, and she, I, I think you know, opera is is about the music, it's about the play, um, and having a director that respects both sides of that. I mean, I think now we're in an era where sometimes there is a director that leans more towards one or. Mm-hmm. But she, uh, her and Corrado together, I mean, it is, it's a partnership and it has to be, you know, we have to meet in the middle mm-hmm. somewhere. And I'm, I'm really grateful for both of their expertise. And so then what brought you to Curtis Institute of Music? You've been through those, all those other programs and now here's another. <laughs> well, I knew that I wanted to do a graduate program mm-hmm. and I knew that I couldn't afford and I didn't want to pay for a graduate program. I didn't want to have a ton of loans, mm-hmm. especially as an artist. And so um, I went to Chautauqua Institute okay. in the summers, and that's where I met um, some amazing faculty, Michael Eliason, who's in charge of Curtis, yes, and also Marlena Malas, who's a wonderful voice teacher, and... Yes, Spiros. Spiros, yes. Spiro Malas. Surviving spouse. Yes. They're both, yeah. yes, they're both fan you know, amazing people. Mm-hmm. And um, and I met Michael, and he took an interest um and we kind of kept up a relationship and auditioned. Now, I know that you begin rehearsals Monday. Is it today is Saturday for uh, the workshop of Dennis and Katja. How much of the score do they have ready for you to learn? Have you got a chance to start any of it? Or is this rehearsal is day one you start learning the score then? You know, I've gotten some of the music in advance, um, but they've really stressed the the point that this is going to be experimental. Mm -hmm. And I think... What is going to be the most exciting is when Philip finally hears our voices, and I think that will really dictate where the the direction mm-hmm. goes, because um, I think Theo and I both have really strong um, opinions, and uh, and it'll be fun to kind of test that out to see. And we have gotten quite a bit of the music, mm-hmm. but I'm sure it'll change. <laughs> and it, I mean, it's it's a really dramatic, and it's I mean, they kind of call it a, a Russian Romeo and Juliet. Am I right? Right. It, what what is the actual story as it is well it's essentially um a a spotlight on a situation that happened in russia between two teens that were um at the forefront of a russian standoff Mm -hmm. police standoff um who ran away who uh were not really supposed to be together um their families fought about it and basically they live streamed their last few days of life uh where they ended up committing double suicide and it's just kind of a uh, look into our society today and how this was kind of sensationalized by media but also kind of totally overlooked and how you know teens today we have so much access to mm-hmm. we I mean <laughs> but my, that of that generation oh, yes. has so much access um, to social media and also like what is real what is not and mm-hmm. um, so it's a look on their love story mm-hmm. and them as children really and at their most vulnerable yeah, there's so much access, but not always such inquiring minds is what I found. It, it's interesting because the things you learn, it's like people, there are a lot of uh, millennials who don't believe that what happened to the Holocaust. It's like, mm-hmm. you've got your phone, you've got your computer, go look. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but also as we know, it's the media has sensationalized so many things, and and there's so much clickbait going on, right. And, right? And what is true, what is real, right? And so I guess it's they're probably going to address some of that. Yes, with, the idea of fake news, mm-hmm. or you know, I I hope it's yes, we are really kind of. Um, society can really steer us in a certain direction based on what news we read, based mm-hmm. on what TV we watch, and um, I, I hope that takes an honest look at that as well, yeah. So, you've, you still have Midsummer, three more performances, you start Dennis and Katja, what's after that? I have a few days, and then I'm going to, <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> I'm going to New York City um, to do a, the Brahms Liebeslieder-Weizes with uh, the Neue and the old book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm doing that with the New York City Ballet, which Ooh, will be really fun. Uh. Um, and I'm singing in the next round of the Metropolitan Opera National Council auditions in Atlanta. Um, and then I'm doing, which I'm really excited about, is I'm doing a Carnegie... Um, it's a Carnegie sponsorship uh, called Citywide Series. It's okay. a recital series of free recitals around the city mm-hmm. and I'm doing a full program with a fabulous pianist Cameron Richardson Eames mm-hmm. and we are doing everything from Brahms to Mohammed Farouz um, oh yes and, and I think Missy Mazzoli and I, I have done works of hers in the past but, I need another recital to do all the works that I want to do but it's it's yes. going to be a huge opportunity for me and him to kind of um, you know make our mark in New York and song mm-hmm. is a huge part of who I am. Where so. can people find out information about that concert Oh, yeah. Series? Well, I have everything on my website. Okay. It's my name, Sienna, with one N, Licht, L-I-C-H-T, Miller, um, dot com. And you can find all that information out. Great. I will look it up because I live in New York, so I Great. should get to some of these. Certainly. Well, thank you for talking with me. Thank you. And con- congratulations and good luck with everything that's going on. Thanks so much. Thanks for doing this. This is Chuck Sachs for Indie Opera Podcast, and I'll be chatting with Tim Mead, who is singing Oberon in the American premiere of Robert Carson's production of Britain's A Midsummer Night's Dream at Opera Philadelphia. Wow, that's a mouthful. (laughs) Hello, Tim. Hi. Congrats on an excellent opening night. Thank you. I really enjoyed and was engaged with your performance of Oberon. Do you have a favorite section of the opera that you like to perform? Well, I think for Oberon, um, his his main activity is in Act One. He's on virtually the whole time, apart from when the rustics are on. So, and you have that you know amazing set piece aria. I know a bank. So yeah, Act One is kind of my favorite because I I love being on stage. Also, when you don't have anything to sing, (laughs) like being just part of an overarching action. I love being constantly involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and Carson's direction is so that. Even when you're still and silent, that there is something going on. Yes, you hope so. I mean, um, I've never actually worked with Robert on this staging, but I think he kind of leaves it up to you to to just listen mm. and be as natural as possible. So, I mean, this is the third time you're—I think it's the third time you're singing Oberon. But third time singing the role, second time in this production. Yeah. That's what I thought because um, you did it in Bergen. Yes. So it was also probably with Emmanuel. Yes, setting absolutely. It. I got to talk with her, lovely. And, a lovely lady. And really an eye for detail. Yeah, absolutely. And she, you know, she loves this production as much as anyone, which is uh, just infectious. Yeah, so um, now the other production you did was at Glyndebourne yeah. Festival Opera. And how different was that production from this? Well, the Glyndebourne 
production is uh, by Sir Peter Hall. And was, oh, uh, well. Mm. Yes. So, you know, that well-known Shakespeare director. <laughs> um, and was premiered, actually, in the year I was born, in 1981. Um, so it's even older than this one. Yes, yes, because this is a very... 1991. Um, yeah, something like that. I mean, they're both classic productions of this piece. I don't think anyone has come close to making something as loved as those two. Sir Peter's is darker. Maybe some would say a bit more traditional. It's got mm-hmm. a sort of Elizabethan Gothic look. Um, we're actually in a forest. There are uh, trees that are alive. And I, I think I've seen pictures. Are you like almost very black and grey and you've got this hair? I've got a that, huge, this, huge this, tall wig that looks yes. look a bit like a badger. But yeah. <laughs> a badger or like parts of trees coming out of you. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, also with the heels that I'm wearing, I end up being, you know, six and a half foot. Wow. <laughs> That's, that would be very different because, I mean, the Carson is, you're very relaxed, you're almost in lounging. Yeah, I think, I think Robert focuses more on the, the dream aspect. Um, yes. There's, there's a sort of delightful, playful fantasy that we're all, we're all part of. Definitely. It's, it was, I would say, uh, much more gentle and, in a sense, more loving. Yeah. Except still, I mean, by this point, it's now that I'm seeing, re-seeing a lot of operas that I've seen before in this period, and it's a Me Too generation, you start to go, wow, the women are really sorely used. Yes, I mean, it's a recurring problem with a lot of operas. Yes, <laughs> yes it is. I mean, it, it's, but we quite don't address what Oberon has done to Titania. Yeah. Although it seems at the end that they're kind of coming together to be a family for this infant, this child that she's adopted from, from one of her followers who yeah. died. Yeah, I think there's, um, because of the way the opera starts with Titania and Oberon in this huge domestic, yes. which is what it is, um, I think it's easy to overlook the love they have for each other because the reconciliation scenes are very brief. So it's very important that when you get those moments with Titania, you do realise, as Oberon, how much you love her, how much you want her, how much you need her. I think they're a very complementary couple. I mean, it's in a sense, it's almost, he's jealous that she's got this new little thing to love. Yeah, I mean, in very in, in some ways, it's like the the Puck Oberon relationship. Yes, um, Puck is jealous of all the other fairies. Oberon, for some reason, has hung on to Puck maybe longer than he needed <laughs> to. Um, Puck is very reliant on Oberon. Uh, there's a sense that everyone kind of needs each other, and there's I mean, it's just like real life, isn't it? Yes, this stage set has a really large break to it. Yes, I mean, how does that affect your performance? Um, you do notice it when you. First start rehearsals because the the rake is is very steep. Curiously, the the biggest problem is when you have to walk across it um, <laughs> parallel to the front of the stage because <laughs> your feet are at such different heights. And actually, I do a lot of slow, elegant gliding. Yes. And it's so easy then to lose your balance. So it really, it, in a sense, sometimes you have to focus more on your physical versus the vocal. Yeah, and it, but I think for this characterization, that's quite helpful because. Um, so much of what Oberon is in this production, the way that I play it, is um, about elegance and stateliness. Um, and from that, Oberon gets his um, mm-hmm. otherworldly power, I think. Yes, so elegantly and stately walks across this floor on an angle. Yes, trying not to fall over, <laughs> trying not to wobble. <laughs> With all that fabric. Yes. I mean, so is the fabric, I mean, presented. It rises up at the end, which is a stunning yeah, vision. Yeah, it's amazing. So is it also kind of a little slidey? No, it seems to hold quite well. And I, I think I'm helped by the fact I'm in barefoot, so I have real 
Mm -hmm. I feel like I have real contact with the floor. So, um, growing up, did you sing in choirs, and, and what was your vocal part at that point? Yeah, so um, I was in a boys' choir from the age of seven, which is uh, in a cathedral in my hometown mm -hmm. of Chelmsford, um, which is a very, very traditional um, route for English singers, I think. Um, and I sang the treble line for many years, until I was about 14. Mm -hmm. And then very quickly I shifted down to the alto line when I started working on my cantilena voice. So you just you went from soprano, yeah, then right to no. I had um, about six to eight months off because um, I really tried to sing the soprano line mm -hmm. as long as I possibly could mm -hmm. um, until it was yeah. not possible <laughs> to do so. Um, and I had no real plans to go back, but mm -hmm. um, an opportunity presented itself, and I thought I'd give it a go. And it's one of those sort and of fortunate moments. When did you decide to study singing in, as as your career goal? Well, I went to university not to study singing. I went to university to study musicology at Cambridge. Um, okay. I did a lot of singing there because I was in the world-famous King's College Choir. Yes. Um, but I had never really thought that singing was going to be, or could be, a career path. It was just something I seemed to be good at. It was a way to help me get into that university, which is incredibly competitive. Yes. Um, and it was only maybe in the last year or so of my studies there that the idea of being a countdown professionally and to sing opera mm -hmm. uh, really presented itself and started to spark my interest. So, I mean, still so after the break from being treble and then becoming alto, you basically remained singing in, tr in, in male treble. At the, um, between, or, the, between then, I was sort of singing, I was trying out different things in my school choir, which uh -huh. was far less so um, tenor high or I was trying to be a tenor incredibly unsuccessfully. Um, and then sort of slid down to the bass part where I was just sort of... Because most around. tenors are not counter-tenors. It's a rarity. Well, I think the, the way the counter-tenor world has totally exploded, mm -hmm. it means we have uh, a huge variety now. Yes. So, traditionally, counter-tenors were sort of in the baritone range. Right. Um, and they ha had the similar counter-tenor range, the similar right. counter-tenors to each other. But now we have... Um, people who have more soprano-like ranges, yes. and they tend to be more naturally tenors. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, I think David Daniels and Bajan Mater were both tenors before they were countertenors. Yes, I could see that. And um, Anthony Roth Costanzo yes. was also, um, I think, a few others. Uh, there's David Sabella, who is more a Broadway, right. who actually won uh, competitions as both a tenor met competitions as a tenor, and that is a countertenor. Well, there's a, a Polish countertenor, or male soprano, um, Jacek Lawczkowski, who I've mm -hmm. worked with, who sings professionally as both a soprano and a tenor. It's quite extraordinary when you hear him warming up next door. You know, <laughs> he's supposed to be singing a soprano role, and he's singing Ness and Dormer or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the shift end came, you know, the thought shift came in the, your first year, your when you were at the Royal College, or no? So I went to the Royal College after I left oh, sorry, Cambridge. Right. Um, so at by that stage, I thought, well, maybe this is what I want to do. And that's mm -hmm. when I first started to do operas. Mm -hmm. um, but that was a very quick process. I already had a manager at that time. Somehow. <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but it did happen. Um, and within a year and a half of being at the Royal College, I made my debut at the Lyon Opera, singing Popea with Bill Christie. So from then on, you know, so well, some of the decisions were taken out of my just hands. A yes, small little group to yes, because uh, once I just imagine once you're in with that group, it's yeah. I mean, Bill has always, and we're so grateful for him for this. Has always been really keen on scouring the world for young talent and also 
I mean, I learned so much from him, just showing you what you can achieve with this music. Mm-hmm. And not by saying, do this, do that, but giving you the tools mm-hmm. to do it yourself. And I remember that process was a very intensive process, and I felt mm-hmm. like it was the most work I'd ever done. But uh, still, lots of the lessons mm-hmm. I learned in that first project, I find myself um, giving on to students now. <laughs> so, in, in your teachers were... Um, who were your main teachers, and were any of them counter tenors? Yes, yeah, so I only point? ever learned with counter tenors, which I which think, is that's a rarity. Too. Yes, I think in the modern day that is very rare. Um, I first started out when I was at Cambridge with a wonderful British counter tenor, Charles Brett, um, who was sort of around in the early days of Johnny Lick Gardner, and he's on many many recordings. Okay, he sang some beautiful mm-hmm. beautiful Bach recordings, and he basically taught me what music I could sing as a counter tenor. We didn't work so much on technique. He didn't. He always felt that he didn't want to touch it because it wasn't... He always said to me that it mm-hmm. was a voice he liked and didn't, and didn't want to mm-hmm. harm. So we yes. just... At that stage, we just worked through a lot of repertoire. I learned lots and lots of concert repertoire, um, touched on a bit of opera, but not much. And I just got all the years of his experience in singing this music. And it was then when I went to the Royal College, I studied with another counter an English counter Robin Blaze, who um, was having a fantastic career at the time, still is, and he's a very fine singer. Um, and he sort of worked a bit more with me on the mm. technique and pushed me further towards opera. You have a very busy schedule. I've looked <laughs> at it. Performing in operas, oratorios, and vocal concerts. Do you have a preference? Um, I think it's the sort of thing all singers say, or some, maybe they don't, but uh, I'm happiest when it's a mix. I think spending all your time on the opera stage can sometimes be stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because of the wide range of concerns you have on your stage with not just the acting and the singing, but there's so many things going on that I think if you're just constantly knocking one opera out after the other, mm-hmm. sometimes parts of you can get lost. I feel sometimes like vocally you get a bit lost, musically you might get a bit lost. And doing concerts and recitals especially, I think helps you bring stuff back into focus. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to have a career as busy as I've ended up yes. having... Um, I think it's really that, that balance is very important for keeping you focused on what's important. So, do you have a bucket list of roles in opera oratorios that you have yet to create? I've yet to sing, yeah. Um, and why those roles? So, I think the obvious one for me is I've sung in a concert but never on stage is the Gluck Orfeo. I think all cantoners want to sing that one. I think. Which? The Gluck Orfeo. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, it's, it, it sort of speaks to me, not just musically, but mm-hmm. as a piece of drama because it's a, it's a short, like, it's 90 minutes long. Yes, it really um, is. But it's this whole idea of being an all-encompassing piece of work. Um, you're pretty much on stage the whole mm. time. You have the ability to affect and influence the mm. whole course of the evening. And, and from an artist's point of view, that's something I'd really relish. Right, because Monteverdi, if I'm correct, is a tenor. Yeah, that's a tenor role. And uh, Haydn, I think, is also a tenor. The Haydn is not known very no, a lot. No, I don't think um, and, and Glass is also it's a tenor. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you'll be returning to Opera Philadelphia next September to participate in Festival 019 in yes. a new production of Semele yes. by the director, James Dara. What role are you singing, and what is their relationship to Semele? So, I'll be singing the role of Athamas, mm-hmm. um, and he's uh, a little bit of a cipher in the story. Um, he's engaged to Semele, but she has uh, her sights on something far grander than this. A god. <laughs> yeah. And actually, Athamas is, you know, we'll have to see how it turns out in this production. Mm-hmm. It's often portrayed as slightly, slightly weak. Like, you do often wonder why someone as ambitious as Assembly would have mm-hmm. fallen for him in the first place. Right. I, I know it's a new 
interpretation by James. Actually, when I spoke, I spoke to James briefly about it a few months ago, and uh, so we both agreed that we would try and find something a bit edgier about the character. Yeah, because I don't think I quite remember him when I saw the BAM did this humongous production of it with huge set pieces and, and huge choruses, and I don't remember. <laughs> well, do you know, the problem with Athamas is yeah. I did it totally uncut in a concert mm-hmm. performance with the mm-hmm. City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra mm-hmm. last season. Um, and it's the first time I've done it uncut. And I suddenly realised how wonderful, actually, Athamas' music is. But because of his role in the story... When you're trying to get the time down, because it's a very long piece, mm-hmm. he often suffers from cuts, which is a shame, because I think Hamlet did give him some, some beautiful things to say. It's, I'm trying to remember, am I correct that the goddess, uh, or Juno, yeah. is out to get Semele or something, in the terms of, because she's pissed off that her husband has become interested? I think that's a story, I haven't... It, it's been a while, <laughs> It's it, been a while, sorry. It, it can be a very confusing yeah. story, and... and the set, everything about the production is so large, it's like, what's going on here? Yes, I think it's always tricky in Brock Opera when you have um, gods and humans. Are you getting a break after this production, or do you go into rehearsals for your next role? Um, so I sh- rehearsals for my next project begin on Monday, but obviously I'll still be in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So I'll start uh, as soon as I can get to Madrid, as after the last concert, uh, last performance here, mm-hmm. uh, for La Calisto at the Teatro Real. Um, which is a wonderful production by David Alden, which I've done in Munich many times. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. It's I, a, I a don't beautiful role. really know that opera at all. It's another opera that is full of gods. In fact, I'm the only mortal. Um, and it's a, one of those Baroque fantasies of gods squabbling and being <laughs> mischievous. And actually, my role is very beautiful because I play the role of this um, really beautiful-souled shepherd who sits on a mountain adoring Diana the moon and... Uh, He's very, very genuine and very loving. And Cavalli clearly loved the character as well because he invested it with the most ravishingly beautiful, quite simple music. Mm-hmm. Um, and every time I do it, I suddenly remember that it's one of my favourite roles. <laughs> well, with that, um, it's been lovely talking with you. Thank you very much. And have a great rest of, of the run. Thank you. And thank you. Thank you very much. And that's Opera Fix for this week. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.